Good morning. We have been in a series since the beginning of March called Long Story Short. So we're trying to go through the entirety of the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, in just 13 weeks. Now to put that into perspective, we are doing the same thing, Genesis to Revelation in Kids Church, but we started in Genesis in September. We made it to Joshua last week, which is the sixth book of the Bible. So we have covered a lot of ground, but we have also had to skip over a ton. Uh, so we've, we've done a lot of the Old Testament, and even so, even going through it slowly, there's still a lot of questions that the Old Testament has. There's lots of questions, there's cultures, there's things that we can't have all the answers for, and as we're journeying into the New Testament today, I hope that you have a new or a refreshed picture of what is happening in light of the whole story. The New Testament is beautiful on its own. If you're new in your faith, that's like the great place to spend a lot of time, a great place to start. But without the Old Testament, it's only half the story. The more I study the Old Testament, the more things click. The more it becomes this greater story. It's like a puzzle coming together, so you start to see this bigger picture. Because when you do a puzzle, you need the picture... And it's helpful to know the measurements ahead of time. Otherwise, you end up like me with this 3,000-piece puzzle that you thought was going to fit on your puzzle board, and then it doesn't. And then it's on your kitchen table for weeks, and your husband is not super impressed about it. (laughs) Who here is a puzzle person? Who here loves doing puzzles? Yes, you are my people. I I like all of you, but I really like you puzzle people. I love doing puzzles. I love seeing the picture come together. All of us puzzle people, we all have our way of doing things. Do we start with the edge? When you open the box and there's pieces already together, are you allowed to keep them? Is that cheating? You know, we have these rules. It's cheating to me. I have to rip them apart and then I like mix it so then I don't know that they're together. So we have these ways, these ideas of how we make the whole picture come together. And for me, there are a few things in life as satisfying as a, as a puzzle just coming together. It's just so good and just makes me so happy and I just feel like I've done a job well done when I, when I complete a puzzle. So we, yeah, I, this is the 3,000 piece that took over our lives for like a month. <laughs> we are going into the New Testament. The Old Testament with the New Testament is so important for everything to fit together for everything to make sense. The last book of the Old Testament that we've left off so far is Malachi. After Malachi, there's this time that's known as the intertestimonial period. So during this period, it's about 400 years, God was silent. He went from burning bushes and great leaders and prophets to silence. Have you ever felt like God was silent? Have you ever felt like, okay, are you really here? Do you really keep your promises? Sometimes God might be silent because we aren't really listening or we're trying to listen or we don't know how how to recognize that he's actually been speaking into our lives the whole time. And sometimes I actually think that God's silent for reasons that we can't always comprehend or understand. God knows when to speak and when not to speak. It takes wisdom to know when to speak, when not to speak. That applies to us, and and God knows that too, and it doesn't mean that he wasn't working, and it didn't mean he didn't care about those people who lived in this 400-year span, but for that 400 years, God was silent. 
It's a long time. It takes a lot of faith to hold on when you've gotten used to a God who's consistently speaking through prophets. When you know and believe that God is a God who speaks, and then he doesn't. The people were waiting for a bigger picture. Generation after generation, the promises had become more distant. The great works of God that we find in Scripture aren't a memory anymore, but they become a story that's passed on. And for 400 years, the story of the God of Abraham and Moses and of Elijah got passed on through silence. The people clung to promises like Isaiah 7, verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. And they waited. Till one day that silence was broken and that's where we enter into the New Testament. Matthew 1, to 23. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said hundreds of years ago through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. The silence was broken not through a burning bush or this great booming voice or trumpets, but it was a cry in the night. It was a baby. I told Mary we could sing a Christmas song this morning because it's been snowing. I guess she wasn't on board with that. It's fine. Get that. Not everyone's into Christmas music like me. It's okay. It's okay. So Jesus is born. And just like that, another piece is added to this picture. God's coming a little closer. He's showing us a little more. But that birth, that cry of the baby would only be the beginning of how God would and has continued to break through the silence ever since the beginning. So John 1 takes us there, it takes us to the beginning, and it says this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So in the beginning was the word, the word. In Greek, this word is logos. And if you've been around for SunWest for a little while, you've, you've probably heard this word before, but just a quick refresher for those who don't remember or if you didn't know already. Logos is most often used to talk about the scriptures written down. So by John writing that the word became flesh, he's saying that the scriptures have come alive. And this is the revolutionary point that John is trying to make in his entire book because God is no longer using a human mediator, but he's actually speaking through himself and he's doing it as a human. The word became flesh. God with skin on, Emmanuel, God with us, has come and made his dwelling among us. So that next word, his dwelling, in the Greek, that's to say that he tabernacled among us. That means that he pitched his tent. Now, why would that be the language that John used? To understand, it's important that we understand the tent, tabernacle, temple reality that existed in the times of Scripture, which we've talked through if you've been here through this series, and we're just going to look at a little bit. So let's go just for a brief moment back to Exodus. Exodus is the second book of the Bible. And Exodus 35, chapter 35 to 40, cover the details of this actual tent that was called the tabernacle. So God gave Moses his commands. He said, I want you to build this. He gave them instructions. Moses collected all the supplies for this thing from the people, and they put it together. We have like pages and pages of excessive detail of what this tent was like. 
until finally we get to Exodus 40, 34 to 38. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. In all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted above the tabernacle, they would set it out. But if the cloud didn't lift, they didn't set it out until the day it lifted. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day, and fire was in the cloud by night, and the sight, in the sight of all the Israelites during all their travels. This is how God dwelt among his people. This is how he tabernacled, in a literal space and place. But it was actually never the point, because even David's temple, which was built after to replace the tabernacle, was built in Jerusalem, ends up getting destroyed in 586-587. We've walked through a little bit of this timeline together. So that temple, they build it to replace the tabernacle, that temple gets destroyed. So then they try and rebuild it again in 515. We talked about that through Ezra and Nehemiah. It lasts a long time. It lasts through the 400 years of silence. It lasts through Jesus' birth. It lasts through his death. It lasts through his resurrection. Eventually, though, temple still ends up getting destroyed in 70 AD. Even in their best efforts, this temple kept getting destroyed. This system, this literal space and place, kept getting interrupted. So last week, we were shown this diagram, this circle here. This is how God worked. This is how God dwelled and how people came near to God. And like we saw in that timeline of events, all this was still there when Jesus was there. But Jesus actually started to make this circle, this way to get closer to God, unnecessary because he came in human flesh, Emmanuel, and he came to the outer circle. In a world that Jesus entered into, a world that had been experiencing silence from God for 400 years, that the more close you got to the middle of the circle, the more exclusive it got. When Jesus entered to the outside of that circle, it would have made no sense. The Holy of Holies was only to be entered once a year. It was only entered by one person. It was entered by the high priest. And when he went in, they had to tie a rope to his ankle because if he messed up in there, he'd die. And if you went in to go get him, you'd die. So they had to tie a rope on his ankle. Then Jesus came to the outer circle. He had no sacred walls, no rituals, no priestly gowns, no rope on anyone's ankles. And he just walks around. Imagine how disruptive this would have been. John 4 tells an important story that puts this disruption into perspective for this particular time and place that Jesus entered into. Because I think it's hard for us to grasp just how insane this was in its context. It's a fairly well-known story, at least in Christian worlds it is. It's known as the woman at the well. For today, though, I'm going to read you an interpretation of the story that's called The Water. And I've been planning on reading this story for a few weeks, but I think it's even more fitting now. um, Because the author of this story, who's controversial and has a lot to say about a lot of really, really important things that have impacted the way we talk about God and read scripture and theology, she actually passed away yesterday morning. Um... So we're going we're gonna to read a little bit of her writing. She was incredibly creative and had some really, really beautiful words um, that we're going to read together today. So this is The Water by Rachel Held Evans. I went to the well at noon, sun burning my neck, sweat stinging my eyes. I sighed to think how much heavier the water jar would seem on the journey back. 
In the desert, wells give and draw life. Their waters evocative of the womb. Wells are where our ancestors arranged marriages, fell in love, received word of impending births. Wells are where God starts something new. I was not a woman who belonged at a well. As the sun beat down like a great unseeing eye overhead, I saw a figure seated at the well. A man. I drew closer and I spotted the knotted tassels on his coat confirming he was a Jew and I felt a rush of relief. Good. We won't have to talk. A man in this country rarely speaks to a woman. A Jew to a Samaritan? Never. Will you give me a drink? His voice startled me like a crack of thunder in the day. For a moment, I thought I doubt I'd heard it. What sort of Jew asked a Samaritan for water? They believed even our pitchers were unclean. You're a Jewish man and I'm a Samaritan woman, I said with a laugh, weary of meeting his eyes. And you're asking me for water? If you knew who I was, he answered, you'd be asking me for a drink. And I would give you fresh flowing water, water that's colder and cleaner than this. And I would give you the kind of water you really crave. Now he had my attention. Artisan water from this well, I pressed. Sir, you don't even have a bucket to draw with, and this well is deep. Are you saying you're better than our ancestor Jacob, who dug this well and drank from it himself? Are you saying you know something he didn't? I couldn't help myself. Jews are so smug about religion. No doubt this man never thought a Samaritan woman thought of such things. Everyone who drinks from this well will be thirsty again, he said. But whoever drinks the water... I offer will remain satisfied, for they will have a gushing spring inside them that never runs dry. Well, then give me some of that water, I laughed, playing along. Then I won't have to hike to this well every day. The man fell silent. Assuming I had offended him, I prepared my bucket, and I lowered it into the well. Go call your husband and come back, he said, breaking the silence. My jaw clenched. I have no husband, I said. Indeed, you don't. You've had five husbands, haven't you? And the man you're living with now is not one of them. Five. This man knew me. He knew more than what local gossip could carry. He knew my secret. Shaking, I let my rope slip, and the bucket plunged into the water. I staggered backward. I see you're a prophet, I said. The man said nothing in reply. So for a while, we sat there together under the sun, sweating and thirsty, a strange understanding growing between us. He went to the well and picked the bucket up. So tell me something, I said, recovering my courage. Samaritans say the rightful place of worship is the mountain over there. But Jews say it's in Jerusalem. Who's right? It may seem like a strange thing to ask a prophet who's just laid your life bare, but if God was speaking to me through a Jew, I had some questions. Time and geography had given us different cultures, different practices, different sacred places. The Jews destroyed our temple in Mount Gerizim a hundred years before I was born, then banned us from worshiping in Jerusalem. If this man was a prophet, that meant righteousness belonged to the Jews. And if righteousness belonged to the Jews, a woman like me had no place to meet God. Don't worry about that, he answered a smile in his voice. Salvation will come through the Jews, yes, but it'll be for all people. 
The day is coming when all the barriers between us will collapse. God is spirit after all and truth. You can't build a temple around spirit. You can't lock truth in a shrine. That kind of worship, the one God wants, is the worship without walls. At that, he handed me my bucket of water and brought it to my lips. I lifted my head and I drank deep of the coolest, richest water I'd ever tasted. I drank and I drank and I drank and I drank till I could no longer breathe. When I finished, I wiped my mouth on my sleeve and handed the bucket to the man who, to my amazement, threw his head back and gulped the rest of it down. For a moment, I doubted what I'd just witnessed. This man, this Jew, this Messiah drank from my defiled cup and with relish. He saw my surprise and laughed. We laughed and dried our faces until we realized a crowd had gathered. At least 10 men, all of them Jews, stood around us, faces stricken. The man whom they called teacher assured his friends that no laws had been broken, then told the men to prepare for a longer stay. We'll be feasting with Samaritans tonight, he declared. I'm certain that in spite of myself, I beamed. I had to tell someone, but who? As more names and my faces came to my mind, my feet moved faster and I ran to the hillside past the sycamore. My feet pounded the ground as the town came into view and I made it all the way to Sakar before I even noticed. I left my water jar behind. Jesus changed everything. Jesus dwelling in human flesh is life changing. He turns the whole temple system upside down. He disrupts the circle. And in the context of this bigger story that we're going through, we need to understand that he might as well have gone into the temple with a sledgehammer and just started knocking it down. Which, I mean, he kind of does with his resurrection, which we'll get to in a bit. But I don't want to go there just yet. Because if Jesus just came to die, then the puzzle will be missing a lot of pieces, and puzzles that are missing the pieces are the worst. That's, we're not going to do that. Jesus' life before his death is a significant part of the picture. His life wasn't just to die. His life was to enter the outer circle and bring us what was inside the temple out to all people. So the coming of Christ, the coming of Christ Emmanuel changes everything. Talking to that woman was scandalous in and of itself. And then he goes along and offers her life and presence outside of the temple. You know, I think the temple getting destroyed that second time in 70 AD, I wonder if God was actually not all that mad about it. Because it wasn't about the temple. Jesus wrecked everything that people thought they knew because the temple was no longer a building, but it was a person. And through that person, the temple is now people. It's us. God brings the story together and Jesus come to earth and he widens the picture even more on the cross. Matthew 27, 50 to 51. And Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice and gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rock split. Now this was no bedsheet of a curtain. It wasn't like the curtain ripped and the priests were like, hey, who ripped the curtain? How'd that happen? This was the separation between the holy of holies, God's dwelling place, and the rest of the world, and it no longer hung in the temple when Jesus died. And after a short time, Jesus would ascend, and then he would pour out his Holy Spirit at Pentecost in the book of Acts. And when he does that, he empowers us to be the temple. 
He empowers us to be the presence of God to all people, living among generation to generation, so that 2,000 years later, God is not silent, but he is still among us. He is still pitching his tent. We are the temple. What a, what a messy idea. In this series, we've learned that the temple was rebuilt after its first destruction, and then those who remembered that first temple built by King David mourned because the second temple seemed like a shadow in comparison. Now imagine what this thing Jesus was doing meant for the people who still had that second temple that was still beautiful. This systematic, unchanging temple. Imagine what it was like for for them to see the temple that Jesus was establishing, for them to see the temple as people. It means it's not polished, it's not a clean system with black and white rules, but instead it's life. It's the story of God's people rebelling and being called back over and over and messing up over and over, and that's what we've got. There's this book that I read a few years ago, it was a church ministry book I had to read in Bible school, it was called They Love Jesus But Not the Church. Isn't that the problem? Have you ever been frustrated by the way someone represents Jesus by their words or their actions? I have. I feel embarrassed or ashamed about things people do in the name of God all the time. I watch the news and there's people with picket signs that's God hates you or I read Facebook comments and they're stating hate or judgment and they're using Bible verses and you go to their profile and they say that they love everyone and Jesus loves them and it's so confusing and I just feel embarrassed and I feel I feel sad. Even more so, what about things, I mean, happening now, but in the forming of our nation? Residential schools. How much of that was done by people who claimed to be Christians, who claimed to be temples that were carrying the presence of God, and often actually used that to justify what they've done? Horrible things have been done by people who claim to be Christians. And when I see that, it's hard for me to just not wonder, like, why would anyone want to be a part of this? Because it creates circles again. And those circles of holiness, they actually push people away and become really exclusive, even though we're supposed to be people who go out. We're people. We're messy. I learn about history and watch the news and see things Christians do, and I just, like, I just want to scream, like, stop it! You are ruining everything. Can't you see the mess that you're making? And we're supposed to be the temple. How often do I mourn the beauty of the temple in Jerusalem? The system, the clean picture, knowing exactly what to do, when and where. But it's not a room. I can't just go in, roll up my sleeves and clean it or hire Jake to build it again. It's more than that. It's so much more than that. Instead, it's cultures and mindsets and personalities and feelings and perspectives all colliding, which really it always was, but now that's all we've got. There's no fallback plan, no plan B. It always has and will always be people. What a messy idea. What a messy, beautiful idea. It's the idea that allows the woman at the well to come into the presence of God. It's the idea that allows you and I to come into the presence of God. All of us, all people, every tongue and tribe are invited to dwell with God, to receive life from him and do life with him. 
abundant life, including and so much more beyond what we can see. That's the bigger picture Jesus is trying to show us. Life with him. Jesus disrupts our idea of what it means to be in the presence of God. So my question for you this morning is this. What difference does the temple come down, the tabernacle of God, Emmanuel, God with us, in you make? What does it mean for you? What does it change? I grew up in church and sometimes it feels like the answer to that is nothing. I was born and raised inside the temple of God's people. I was dedicated to him at birth. Haven't left his side, not once. I've heard time and time again from those of us whose testimony starts, I was born and raised in a Christian home, that it can often feel like we don't actually have a testimony, and I felt like that for a long time. What's God changed? Pretty much nothing. This is the way my life's always been, will probably always be this way. But what I've learned over time is what it means to have the inner circle brought to me. To have Jesus come to the outside of the circle where I stand, of what it means to be grafted into Israel's story and family, and then the promises of God, to use the language of Romans 11. And I've actually started to understand what this means for me a little bit better through getting married. Because I used to have a different last name. And I... I loved that last name. It carried the pride of my heritage, both by being excessively long and starting with Van, and it reminded me of the street in Barneveld, Netherlands, which is really close to where my dad grew up with our name on it, which I realized it looks worse than it is. Strat means street. So if you cut off that, it's not the whole thing, but it's still excessively long, and I just loved it. So it meant, that when I got married, I had a choice to get rid of this monstrosity, which I love. I had a choice to change it. And it meant that when I first started at SunWest and I got my first reimbursement check, Fran actually mailed it because it had my first name on it, which I don't go by, and my maiden name. She didn't know it was me. She didn't know that was my name. So my last name now is still Dutch, which makes me happy, but it's less just like obnoxiously Dutch than my maiden name. I've been grafted into a new family. And in this new family, my in-laws have loved me like a daughter since before my husband Colin and I were even married. They're the kind of people that will drop everything for me, and that isn't something that came over time, but it's just, it's always been there. They're the kind of people that, when I moved to Calgary to work at this church, let me live in their basement, and they fed me for free, even though their son wasn't even here. They're the kind of people that, when your husband goes away on the Mexico trip, and you try and leave your bedroom, and then you can't, and so you have to text your boss, my doorknob is broken, I'm locked in my bedroom, I'm not making it to staff meeting. (laughs) It was awful. (laughs) This was a really bad day. I called my father-in-law, Asked for help, even though he had to go to work. He said, whatever, I don't, he's probably already at work, actually. He came and passed me a rope through a second-story window and tied tools to it, which I had to hoist up and coached me through getting myself out of this awful situation. <laughs> My in-laws have loved me right from the start. No holding back. And if you've talked to me about this, you know, and my in-laws know that it's actually taken me and is honestly still taking me time to accept that love, 
to see myself as their daughter. To let go of not only being two people's daughter, but to receive that kind of love from someone else. And don't think I don't hear myself like, poor me, I have two of the best parents. How can I have two more? It's the best. It's the dream. I know. But isn't that kind of what being loved by God is like? I've started to see my testimony as a life of learning to accept God's amazing, unconditional, no-holding-back love for me. Learning to see myself as his child, his daughter, even though I have secrets no one knows about, even though I should be an outsider who has to go to the well at noon because it's the only time I'm welcome, but instead I'm here, standing on this stage, teaching, full of hypocrisy, full of disobedience, daring to say that not only God dwells in me, but hoping and believing that he speaks through me. I'm a messy temple. And even still, God is teaching me to see myself as the greatest, very good thing that he has made. And through learning that, learning to see other people that way too. That's what it is to be in the presence of God. No rope on my ankle, no fear, but love. That's the bigger picture. Life with God, loved by him. Now back to my question. What difference does the temple come down, the tabernacle of God, and you make? What does it mean for you? What does it change? For some of you, the question, the answer to this question is actually really obvious. God's brought you out of a mess and he's given you a new life like you never thought you would have. Maybe he's carried you through addictions or abuse or just really bad patterns in your life. Or maybe you've had it pretty good, but you had a life without God. And for you, you drink from the well of life and you drink with relish and you cling to his presence because you know what it's like to live without it. Or maybe you don't feel like you've ever experienced God's presence. Maybe you've never entered into that relationship. Why not? Is it because you have doubts? Bring them. Because you have questions or concerns? Bring them. Do you feel like, you know, at the start of summer, you pull out your tent and you're like, oh, that giant hole. Oh, none of these zippers work. We should probably throw this out. Let Jesus pitch his tent and fill you anyways. God isn't asking you to go through a system of holiness. He isn't asking you to be churchy enough to get to him. That's why he came, not just to die, but to live, to enter into our circle and bring us himself. And when he died, he made it clear and made it possible that everyone was welcome. Jesus' death took our mess. He took on whatever it is that that makes you feel like you can't enter into the presence of God. And he actually just says, I'm already here. God has already let you in. Will you let him in? John 1, verse 5. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but it did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, those who believed in his name... He gave the right to become children of God. Verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. 
Out of his fullness, we have received grace in place of grace already given, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. God's presence isn't just a story passed on like the people of the Old Testament passed on stories. Yes, it's that. It's the story of scripture and Christian history passed on. It's also a memory from our grandmas and our aunts and uncles and our parents and our friendships, our camp counselors and cabin leaders and Sunday school teachers, our coworkers, whoever it is that showed you Jesus. It's a memory from them and it's also here right now. God is among us, Emmanuel. He has pitched his tent in our lives. But there's still darkness. From the beginning of time to this moment in time, God is constantly breaking through the darkness. Yeah, Ben, you can come on out. God is breaking through this darkness, and God is present in this world, breaking that silence more and more. He's making that picture bigger every day, and he's not done yet. More often than not, God actually chooses to break through us. And sometimes I see the Spirit working and I see this picture coming together and it's like nothing in the world could make more sense. And then sometimes I see the Spirit working, I see God working and I I have more questions than answers. Sometimes it makes me jump for joy and sometimes it brings me to tears. It's life. It's light breaking through not to fill a cloud and not to fill a room, but to fill people and to fill them with life. God's people, we are presence carriers, and everyone is invited to the bigger picture of life with God, loved by him. What a messy idea. What a messy, beautiful idea. Maybe you feel too messy or broken or unclean or uncertain to accept the presence of God. Let me remind you, you are his plan A. This is why he died on the cross. His life, this life wasn't something you were made to do on your own. It wasn't something you were made to do without him. You were made for life with God, to be loved by him. We're going to sing that chorus again, and I'm going to invite our prayer teams actually to come forward now. If you've invited God into your life for the first or many times today to just be with you, I want to actually challenge you to tell someone. Tell the person sitting next to you or come up here and we have people who will pray with you. Let them pray for you. Let someone pray for you. God is inviting you to be a presence carrier, to do life with him, to have him fill you with that life, and that is what's going to impact our places and our spaces. That's how we're going to recognize the mess inside ourselves and in other people and then love them anyways, pray for them anyways, even when our temples are messy. Because it's not about our mess. It's about God with us through the mess. Life with God, loved by him. Let's sing again. Father, I ask that you just help us become more aware of your presence. You're already here and you're already working and you are not silent, God. Help us experience the glory of your goodness. Fill us anew or fill us for the first time as we go from this place and this space to the lives that you have given and that you have called us to. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a good week.